let me invite you to go ahead and have your seat. And if you don't mind, just bow your heads and eyes closed for just a moment as we go into a time of prayer. And the reality is that we gather in this place every week because of that reality right there, that Jesus paid it all for us. That this man of sorrows went to the cross in our place. He died and took the penalty and the punishment of our sin and what we deserved upon him. And as we're going to celebrate next week when we gather together for Easter Sunday, that he conquered it by overcoming it and rising again. And and that's the the life that we live in every day, this constant reminder that, that while we are great sinners, we have a greater Savior. This constant reminder that we are forever and always will be in need of God's redemptive grace, but praising Him and living the reality that the power of sin has been broken and the penalty of sin has been absorbed and that every one of us today in Jesus are able to walk in newness of life. And I don't know what your week has been like. Uh, Maybe this week you just had one of those weeks where it seemed like you just nailed it. I mean, you just seemed to spend time in the Word. You seemed to spend time uh, following in the truth that you've received. You spend time growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if that be the case, then praise God for the grace that's been bestowed upon you that enabled you to walk in that life. And then some of us just kind of limped in here, and that's okay, because it seemed like everywhere we met or went, we were met with failure, that it seemed like we just couldn't quite get it right, we couldn't seem to do the things that we know that we needed to do, and you came in here this morning feeling like, oh, what a wretched man I am, a slave to sin. And you ask yourself the question, who's going to deliver me from this way of life? And the answer is still the same, praise be to Jesus, who conquered for me that I might today be in this place forgiven, redeemed, restored, and able to walk in newness of life. And the reason I point that out is it's so elementary, but at the same time, it's the very foundation of which we set on. It's where we live. It's the reality. And so just remind ourselves today that this gospel truth never gets old, that Jesus indeed has paid it all for you and I. And all to Him we owe, not in some sense of of repayment, because that's not the gospel, but in the sense that because of what Jesus has done, we freely now, in great joy and praise, offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our spiritual act of worship. And so with that in mind, let's just go to the Lord in prayer, thanking Him for the grace that's been bestowed upon us in Jesus, but also asking Him for that affection, that desire, that that ability to walk in that new life and offer our bodies as living sacrifices to Him. Father in heaven, we come before You grateful. Father, not just because we're able to sing big songs with big music that help stir our affections, but God, because the words that we sing in this place are true. Because it's the hope that we have, it's where we rest our lives, and it's the foundation that we build our lives upon, that Jesus has done everything necessary for us in order to reconcile us back to the Father. And Father, because our debt's been paid in full, because His righteousness has been credited on our behalf, because God, today, we've been justified by the redemption that's in Jesus and the propitiation that He made for us, Father, today we know that our labor is not in vain and therefore we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to you. 
So Father, may we never grow weary of hearing this truth, but God, may it serve as fuel for our hearts, our souls, and our lives. That God, every day we would lay our lives on the altar, not in an attempt to repay you, but God, out of worship for all that you've done for us. Father, we pray and thank you for all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, let me invite you to open it up to Luke chapter 9. And instead of starting in verse 1, which is where we left off last week, we're actually going to jump ahead this morning to verse 18. And the reason that we're going to do that is I think this passage is going to kind of help set the tone for us in living in this week that we refer to as Holy Week. And so this is the week that we tend to think upon the triumphal entry of Jesus, how He made His way into Jerusalem. On Friday, we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus gave His life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then a week from now, we're going to gather in this place to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we think upon all that was accomplished in this given period of time that brought about the salvation that we so greatly needed, but so richly walk in and live in. And so I want to jump ahead because I think it's important for us just to kind of set the tone mentally and in our hearts uh, for what we're going to be doing and thinking upon this week. Uh, let me encourage you and invite you to come back tonight at six o'clock. We're going to be having a night of worship here at the church where we're going to sing, where we're going to have some scripture reading, where we're going to hear some testimonies and really just kind of get our hearts in alignment with the Lord as we walk throughout this week together. Uh, let me invite you to be back here on Friday evening. We're actually going to meet in the atrium and we're going to have a good Friday service at 630. Uh, where we're going to spend some time focusing on some scripture, walking through the events of what transpired on that Friday, and then sharing in the Lord's Supper together. So we would encourage you to come. And then of course, we want you to be here next week as we celebrate Easter Sunday. Uh, don't forget there'll be a breakfast in the atrium before our service, which is at 1030. And we want you not just to come and have a good time fellowshipping with the family of God, uh, but also would love for you to use that invitation to that breakfast to invite your neighbors, your friends, someone to come and, and just celebrate what we celebrate so, so wholeheartedly here is that Jesus accomplished everything that was necessary and His resurrection is indeed proof of that. And so we invite you and encourage you to come and be a part of all of those things together. Uh, now as we look at this passage this morning, uh, and I've told you this before, Luke does not always put things chronologically. And you might say, well, why is that? And I, I don't know that I can tell you outside of the fact that Luke has put together his, his evidence. He's an investigative journalist, we said, that he's researched and he's looked through all of these things and he's putting together that he seems best under the leadership of the Holy Spirit in the correct order. And when I say correct order, not chronologically, but for him to make his case in his evidence that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Uh, as we look at this passage, actually Matthew 14 through 16 is going to bridge some gap that it seems like we might have as we read the narrative of Luke together. You might seem like, well, this seems to fit a little bit later in the story, and it does. And so if you want to go and actually read more of a chronological order, you can read Matthew 14 through 16 that would kind of fill in some gaps for you if you would like. Uh, but basically, Luke is bringing us to this moment where Jesus is probably going to ask the most important question of his disciples that he's ever asked them before. Now, just to give you a little bit of background before we look at the question, uh, this is about two and a half years into Jesus' earthly ministry and his disciples 
following him. And so it's been about two and a half years since that moment that Peter and James and John met Jesus there as they were fishing. And Jesus said, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And then over a short period of time, he began to put together this group of 12 men who were going to be his disciples, that were going to be his immediately immediate followers, whom he's going to train, whom he's going to teach, whom he's going to reveal the secrets of the kingdom to them. And so I want you just to think about what they've witnessed over the last two and a half years of their life as each of them have willfully left their professions. They've willfully, in one sense, left their homes. They go back for different periods of time. But basically, they've embarked upon this journey with Jesus. And in that time, they have witnessed Jesus be the master teacher. They've witnessed Him teach with authority and with power in a way that no one else who's ever walked to the face of the earth has been able to do. And so I want you to think about what it would be like for them to sit there in a synagogue as Jesus would open up a scroll and there the Word that became flesh would expound upon the Word of God in a way like no one else has ever heard it preached before. Matter of fact, one of the things that people walked away from Jesus' teaching would always say is we've never heard anything quite like this. Now they had heard many gifted men open up the Word of God and give right truth and give right uh, understanding of what it would be. But Jesus, again, being the Word incarnate, Him being the author of that Word, is now able to relay it in a way with authority and power and conviction and truth unlike anybody else. And so these young men who have grown up being taught the law and the prophets for the first time are saying, we've never heard anyone teach quite like this. I want you to think about what it would have been like for them to go from the different cities and villages that they would go to. And we see that Jesus at one point in His ministry now begins to teach only in parable. He begins to move away from that teaching practice that He had and begins to gather groups around Him. And He would take the most simple, ordinary, life uh, applicable stories of that day, but use them to weave in biblical spiritual truth in a way that would captivate his audiences, but were only for those who were spiritually discerned. And so in one sense, it was simple enough that a child could listen and understand the meaning of it, but yet at the same time, it had the ability to confound the the, the greatest scholar of that day. Sometimes they'd walk away saying, well, what did he mean by that? When when ordinary, unlearned people seemed to grasp the message behind it. And think about it, what it was like to be one of those disciples who over and over again heard him teach in a way that just continued to reveal the kingdom of God right there in their midst. I want you to think about that two and a half years by which they would have followed Jesus around and seen untold numbers of miracles. And we get a little glimpse of it in the Bible. For instance, we get a guy that couldn't see but now can see. We get lepers who were covered with a skin disease who have now been made whole. We get lame men who couldn't walk who are now able to walk. And we could go through the whole line of the different miracles that the Gospels record for us. Of course, we've looked just in the last couple weeks of how a person who was dead has come back to life, and clearly they are watching supernatural things happen in their midst. John goes on to record in his gospel that Jesus did so many miracles that all all the books in the world could probably contain them, and basically says what we're telling you is just a small fraction 
of what Jesus did. And many scholars would say that that disease almost was eradicated in Galilee and in these areas during this time of ministry in Jesus. Why? Because multitudes continued to come to Him and He continued to display the power and the authority of God over sickness and disease in these areas to where all of a sudden, a a place that because of a lack of modern medicine and things that, that would have caused common sickness and even death, all of a sudden are no more. And the disciples have witnessed this over and over again with their eyes. But not just them. The crowds have seen this. The crowds have witnessed this. They've seen Jesus do things like no one else has ever been able to do. I want you to think about His power over the, the, the natural, the creation. And we've talked with stories about how He was able to cause fish to be in a certain place where they weren't at a time of day that they were never there after His disciples had labored all night long trying to catch them, and all of a sudden their boat fills up with so many fish, they're afraid it's going to sink. And they just can't explain how this would happen. Why? Because it's not natural. That doesn't happen that way. We've seen as they've witnessed Jesus with the spoken words, stop a storm with three simple words, peace, be still. The Gospels will record a moment where Jesus Himself defies physical nature by being able to walk on water. And we could talk about His power over the demonic forces and spirits who even held trembles in the very presence of this man. And people just look and say, we've never seen anything like this. And it's true, right? Because when has there ever been a time and place in history that one person was able to do these things over and over and over again? And I point all of this out to say for two and a half years, these men and other crowds and multitudes have been exposed to moments where Jesus does the unthinkable, takes a little boy's lunch, and feeds close to 20,000 people. And you might say, wait a minute, that story says 5,000. Well, we believe that story is referring just to the men who were gathered in that place. It doesn't take into account the women and the children would have been there. And one of the examples I love to give with, give with kids is, you know that Lunchable that mom and dad send you to school with, right? You got your little crackers and you got your little cheese and, and you got your little ham or your little turkey in there. And then maybe if you're lucky, you get the one with the little candy bar that goes on it. Man, I wish they would have had those in my day. We just had mom's sandwich wrapped up in a Ziploc bag. But nonetheless, it was good. But, but this Lunchable, and imagine that, that you're in the middle of what's now the Pay.com Center. It used to be the Ford Center. Chesapeake Key Energy Arena holds around 20,000 people. And the concession stands are broke. There's nothing to eat. We've been in there for quite some period of time. And all of a sudden, a little boy says, well, I've got my Lunchable. And we all laugh and say, isn't that cute? He thinks he's going to feed us. And Jesus takes that Lunchable, and before long, everybody has something to eat, and there's even Lunchables left over. And guess what happens? It's proof that Jesus is able to do things that you just can't explain. And why do I set that story? Because for two and a half years, the disciples have witnessed this, and Jesus, to our record, has never asked them what they thought of it. He's allowed them to be there. He's been training them. He's been teaching them. He's been exposing them as well as a bunch of other people. But now all of a sudden, two and a half years in, as the story's about to narrow down and Jesus is going to begin that last six-month trek uh, to the point where He's going to sacrificially give His life as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, He has a very intimate moment with them where He's finally going to ask them a very important question. And so with that in mind, let's start in Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. Well, it says, this, 
while he was praying in private. Now, I don't want to elaborate on this too much because it's not what I want us to focus on today, but we've looked at it before. Luke makes a lot of reference to the fact that Jesus would get alone and spend times of private communion with the Father. And as we've said this before, it's just another reminder for us that if Jesus thought it necessary to get alone, to be with God, have these private moments of communion, we as his followers need to make sure that we're disciplining ourselves to do the same. And I'm not going to try to prescribe that for you, what that looks like in your day and where it needs to happen. What I am going to try to make sure I drill home in us over and over again is it is important for you and for me to have that kind of closeness with the Father where we're making sure that we are spending adequate time with Him, crying out to Him, listening to His voice, telling Him our needs, praising Him. And so here Jesus is, as was common for Him and accustomed to Him. He's, he's in private. His disciples were in the vicinity, so maybe they're out praying and, and, and too. But now as they're with Him, He's going to ask them a very simple question. Who do the crowds say that I am? And so he looks at his disciples and said, all right, I know there's a lot, of, a, a lot of hubbub out there. I know there's a lot of talk. You know, in our day, it would have been like, how am I trending on Twitter, right? You know, what's, what's the word on the street about me? What are people saying? And his disciples inter- answer with something very interesting. They say they answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. And so the word on the street is, we don't know who he is or what he is, but we know he's not ordinary. Now, interestingly enough, if you go back a little bit earlier in chapter 9, there's going to be a moment where Herod, the Tetrarch, who is the leader of this area uh, during the time of Jesus, uh, he's always like up to date on what's going on in Jerusalem and in Israel. And so he hears about this and he wants to have Jesus come in front of him. He wants to see him kind of like, I want to check this out because people were saying things like this. One of the prophets has come back from the dead. John the Baptist is back. Now, this is really interesting for Herod because Herod's like, I had John the Baptist's head cut off. He's not alive anymore. So people are saying, John the Baptist has come back. I want to see this with my own eyes because last time I saw, we had John's head on a platter. Uh, Do I need to be aware of something? And so all of that being said, the street was filled with rumors about who Jesus was. And all of them acknowledged this, interestingly enough. Not one of them said, oh, he's just some guy. There's not one person out there who's saying, all right, based upon what we've seen, what we know, he's just some guy. They're saying he's not ordinary, so we got to try to explain it somehow. And so they're saying, clearly, someone with power, with authority, with God's blessing, with God's message is here. So clearly, either John the Baptist is back, one of the prophets has come back, Elijah, uh, maybe Jeremiah, someone has come back. But here's what we know, it's not someone ordinary. Now, we can look at this, right, with the, with the beauty of hindsight and with the beauty of the Scriptures laid out in front of us and with all the data that we've collected and say, what kind of answer is that, right? Does anybody look at this answer and say, well, well that, that seems reliable, that seems to make sense? I mean, I think most of us would say, of all the evidence that we have here about Jesus, that's the best that you can come up with that one of the prophets from the Old Testament has come back from the dead. But before we're too hard on these people at that time, let us just stop and think this question for ourselves. If we were to ask people today on the street, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? You're going to get a variety of answers, right? Some would say, well, he's a good teacher. 
Some would say, well, he's just a a revolutionary, just a guy like a lot of different guys in history that have created a movement. And we would say, well, that's quite a movement because it's managed to last several thousand years. But nonetheless, they would try to explain it away as a bunch of other people. And you and I would sit here and say, well, well, how is it then with all the evidence that we see in the Bible and all of the, the stories that we've been told throughout history that the best that people can come up with is he's just some religious leader, maybe just some cult leader, or maybe just some, some good man, uh, maybe just some prophet that was sent by God. We're like, why can't they see it? And here's the reason why, and this has been the problem throughout sin, ever since sin entered the world. Sin has made you and I blind to the truth. And so even when it's right there in front of us, right? Even when, when, when all of the evidence that we need is right there, we manage to, to explain it away. Why? Because that's the nature of, of spiritual blindness. It causes you not to be able to see that which is evident that's right in front of us. And so before we give these people a hard time, here's the reality that even in our day and age, we have the scriptures that are right here available for us to read and study. And we have the spirit of God that's moving and working and has the ability to convict a man of righteousness and convict man of sin. Even today, there are many that still don't get it. And let me just even bring this a little bit closer to home, because this is the most tragic to me, that even today, there are people who will sit in the pews of a church where the Bible and the scriptures are read every week, and where songs of praise to this God in heaven are sung, and yet they're still going to miss it. Because in their mind, Jesus is just some solution to some problem that I have. You know, well, he's the guy that I cry out to when I'm sick and someone in my family got a bad diagnosis or someone close to us is lost or when there's tragedy in the world, we look to him and say, well, Jesus, would you do something about, it, about that for us? And basically what we've relegated him to is nothing more than a, than a genie that basically just exists at our beck and call. And then whenever life gets difficult, we rub it and say, where are you? Will you come and help? And if he does what we want, we'd say, thank you for that. And if he doesn't, we curse him and say, how dare you not love me and care for me? And then we put him away to the side until the next time that we need him. And guess what? The implication that we're about to see here in just a moment of Jesus being the Messiah, and that's what Luke has been trying to explain to us very clearly, is more than just some guy that exists to fix your problems. The implication is that he is both the Savior and the King. Now let me tell you why I think so many people in church miss it. Because basically they just want some Jesus that's going to fix their problems and tell them they're not going to go to hell when they die. That's the Jesus that they want. And what that means is, Jesus, we want to be able to call on you when things are bad. Jesus, we want you to know that our eternal security is secure. But other than that, we just want to live our lives the way that we want, do the things that we want to do in the time frame that we want to do them, and enjoy them however we want to enjoy them. And Jesus, if we need you, we'll call out to you. And let me just tell you this reality, which is the most scary one of all to me, is that church pews and seats are filled with that type of person who think they know who Jesus is, yet here's what I think is going to happen on that day when they stand before Him. It's going to be evident that they never knew Him. Because the implication of why Jesus came was not just to save you from hell, it was to rule and reign in your heart as He establishes His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So let's look at what happens next, right? So, So they give the answers, and Jesus doesn't even acknowledge them. 
I find this very interesting. So they're like, who do people say that I am? And they tell him, this is what they're saying. And Jesus just jumps from that. Now, I've got a better question for you. Now, now it's a good thing they didn't ask me, because when I heard those answers, I'd say, that's dumb. Right? I mean, I'd be like, how on earth do people think I'm John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist was there at the same time that I was baptized, right? That's dumb. John's my cousin. I mean, you can go ask our parents, like, like we're not the same person, and there's plenty of evidence available in Galilee, with just a little bit of effort, you can figure out that we're not the same person. So, so there's a part of me to be like, well, well, that's dumb. But Jesus is like, I'm not, even, I'm not really concerned about what they think in the moment, because guys, I've got a real question that I want you to answer, and so here it is, and this is the question that you're going to have to deal with in life, Right? It's like the the biggest question there is. And so he turns it on him and says, okay, that's what they're saying. But you, who do you say that I am? Now here's what's really interesting about that question. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't even address what anybody else is saying. Because guess what? For Peter, it really doesn't matter what anybody else says about Jesus. For Peter, it matters what does Peter say about Jesus. And for John, and for James, and for Andrew, and for Simon the Zealot, and for even Judas, all of these men that have gathered around, he's like, guys, let's not waste a whole lot of time talking about what other people think, because the reality is for you, I need to know, you need to know, who do you say that I am? Now what's really interesting about that question is sometimes if we're not careful in this room, we want to let other people's opinion or thoughts on Jesus help determine our thoughts and opinions on Jesus. But let us just make something very clear that when you stand before the eternal God of all creation and stand before Him in judgment, what Twitter said about Jesus will be irrelevant. What all of your peers thought about Jesus will be irrelevant. Right now, we have this great movement of deconstruct, right? This whole picture of people wanting to deconstruct their religion. And sadly enough, it's kind of become this cute little cool phenomenon for a lot of people to want to be like, well, I was brainwashed and I was taught this. And, and really, what I, what I would love to see is if you would put as much energy in trying to see if the facts concerning who Jesus is are really true as evident as you are trying to say that they're not, maybe you might come to a different conclusion. But nonetheless, it's this whole movement of you're like, well, I might be caught up in the whole, well, deconstruct my religion thing. Let me just tell you very clearly, it's not going to matter on the day that you stand before Jesus what the deconstructing religion movement said about Him. It's not going to matter how your parents taught you. It's not going to matter what, what culture, whether you're a millennial or a Gen Z or a Gen Xer, it's not going to matter like what was the, the mode of that day. What's going to matter simply is this, who do you say that Jesus is? And I want to challenge you not to take that question too lightly. I want to challenge you not just to fall back on what you've been taught all your life and all the lessons that you've heard and all the stories that have been given to you where either you just said yes, not thinking, or I don't care, not thinking. But I want you just for a moment to stop today and to be able to answer this question if Jesus looked at you and said, who do you say that I am? What would the heartfelt response of your soul answer in that morning? What would the conviction of your life say if Jesus stood before you and said, who do you say that I am? Because in that moment, all the rhetoric, all the jargon, all the things that you picked up really aren't going to matter a whole lot. What's going to matter is inside in your inner soul what your conviction is concerning Jesus. And Peter does what we know Peter to do because he's the loudest, the one who's always going to speak first. He answers the question very simply but truthfully, 
you're God's Messiah. Now think about that, right? I mean, this is huge. Basically, what, what, what Peter has just confessed is, Jesus, you are the one that ever since Adam and Eve, our forefathers, sinned in the garden, and you promised one that was going to come and crush the head of the serpent, that's who you are. You're the one, Jesus, that Psalm 16 told us about when it said, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are treasures forevermore. Jesus, that's you. Jesus, you're the one that the prophet Isaiah said was going to come, that was going to be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, that the chastisement that brought us peace might be upon him, that by his stripes we might be healed. The same one that Isaiah 9, 6 was talking about, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and we will call him Emmanuel, God with us, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Why? Because Jesus, you're the only one that could do this. Jesus, you're the one that the psalmist foretold and said that you will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And while Peter doesn't get all of this, I think, in that exact moment, that's the declaration of his heart by which he says, the only answer I've got, Jesus, on who you are, is you have to be Him. Now, what was the implication of Jesus being the Messiah? Well, there's several things that the Bible would tell us, but two that would stick out more than anything. The first one is this, is that Jesus is going to come, and He's going to be the one that frees the people of Israel, you and I, all of those who are under sin, by defeating the power of the devil. So the first implication here is, Jesus, you're going to be our Savior. You're going to save us. As you think about that, I think all of us in this room would acknowledge, yes, I need a Savior because there are things in my life that are wrong. There are things in my life that don't belong. There are things in my life that I can't overcome. And at the end of the day, here's what I know as a broken man. I am incapable of fixing all that is wrong inside of me. I'm less than I should be. I've sinned against God and I don't have an answer. Jesus, I need you to save me. Then there's another part of that by which he says, Jesus, you're the king. Because guess what this Messiah was going to do? He was going to come and he was going to rule and he was going to overthrow their adversaries. Now in their mind, they still haven't been able to divorce the fact that that, that Rome is not their biggest problem. But Peter and those that would have listened to Jesus in saying that you're the Messiah would have also acknowledged that, listen, you're the king, you're the ruler, you reign, we follow you, we listen to you. And so I want you to understand that this declaration that Jesus is the Messiah is not some small declaration. They're basically saying, Jesus, you're the one we've been longing for. You're the one that came to save. You're the one that came to rule. You're the one that came to establish your kingdom. Now, here's the question for us, right? How come nobody else was able to get this? I mean, because I'm sure Peter, James, and John and them were were privy to some inside things that other people didn't. I mean, matter of fact, we're going to see in the next chapter that, or excuse me, later in the chapter, that just a few of them were able to see the transfiguration that occurred. And so clearly they were allowed to see some things. But interestingly enough, they weren't able to see that until after they understood that he was the Messiah. And so I'm sure there were some moments of intimacy that they got with Jesus, clearly that other people didn't get. But I think we would all agree that there's enough evidence sitting around by what people have witnessed and seen with their own eyes for them to come to the same conclusion. Yet people haven't got there yet, or very few. And the question is why? And here it is. Luke doesn't record this, but Matthew does. After Luke, or Matthew, records 
Peter as saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, or you are the Messiah, here's what he says Jesus follows it up with. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. So here's the link, right? How is it that when everybody else was blind, saying, well, he must be a prophet, he must be John the Baptist come back from the dead, these disciples were able to see it, and the answer was, which is the answer that we all need, God's Spirit, God's work, opened their eyes to see the truth for what it is. And one of the things that each and every one of us in this room so desperately need is for God to illuminate ourselves, our eyes, in such a way that we're able to see our sin and our need for a Savior and that point us in the direction that Jesus Christ is indeed the one who came to take away the sins of the world and rule and reign in our hearts. And that's the implication here. God has worked in their lives in such a way that it's opened their eyes to see and now here with their own mouth they're confessing, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. The Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, fortunate are you that you know this because flesh and blood hasn't done this, but my Father in heaven has done it. Now, you would think at this moment there is going to be some celebration, right? And it's kind of hard for us to feel the weight of this because, uh, you know, we're not Israelites who have been waiting thousands of years for this Messiah to come. But, but Jesus confirms, you're right, Peter, I am the Messiah. And you got to be thinking, man, we got to go tell everybody. I mean, Israel has been waiting for this for thousands of years, and it's just been confirmed to us. Uh, it's party time. It, it, it's get your, your swords and your battle gear ready time, because we're going to overthrow Rome, and we need to rally up the troops and everybody else. And here's how Jesus ends it with, verse 21, but He strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one. So, so you're like, let's go. You're the Messiah. We've been waiting for this. I've got my cousin down there, he, 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 can, he can get the uh, old uh, press out and we can start making some swords and we're going to get some, the guys together, they've been waiting for this moment. You know, we Israelites, we've been natural fighters ever since we've been wandering in the wilderness and so let's get this deal rolling, you're the Messiah, we've got to tell everybody and Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Now, that's a little odd, right? You would think if Jesus came to be the Messiah, but, but here's what's happened is It's not time yet. Why? Because Jesus has some things that need to happen. And there are things that are going to blow the minds of his disciples and everyone after him. Now look at this. And this is what's going to launch us into this week. Verse 22. It is necessary. Now let's not forget that. We're going to come back to it. That the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. Now this leaves a guy scratching his head. You've just had this monumental, spirit-led moment by which the Son of God has looked at you and said, Who am I? And by the power of God in you, you come to the realization like, like you're the Messiah. This, and Jesus says, you're right. And you're like, this is, this is great news. We've been waiting for this. And Jesus says, now you can't tell everybody. And you're like, what? Everybody needs to know this. He says, because it's not done yet, it's necessary that I be humiliated and treated poorly 
and brutally beaten. And they don't get all of this, but this is the implication of it. Ultimately killed. How can you be our conquering ruling king if you're dead? And I don't even know if they listened to the last part and be raised on the third day because here's what we know. They struggled even after the whole thing to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, right? Their mind might have just shut off. I don't know. But all I know is this. Jesus ends that moment with something very startling by which he says it's necessary. Now, now if you're to read Matthew's account of it, you get this moment that we like to give Peter a hard time on where he says, may it never be, I'm not going to let you die. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, right? And I think all of us can, can acknowledge our spiritual lives sometimes look like that, that it's a great moment of, I get it, followed by a greater moment, it seems like a failure. But you know, before you give Peter a hard time in his mind, he can't rationalize why Jesus would die. And he's like, you're the king, we're not going to let that happen to you. And then Jesus says, oh, Peter, you still have much to learn. Get out of the way of God's plan because he's doing something far bigger than what you think is going to happen in this moment. But Here's what I want us to think on. And it's going to set the tone for what we're going to do Friday and what we're going to do Sunday of next week. It's necessary. What's that mean? It has to happen this way. If it doesn't happen this way, we've got problems, right? And so, so what we're going to look at Friday is why is it necessary for Jesus to die? I mean, isn't there another way that God could have done things to keep Jesus from dying? But Jesus says, no, it's necessary. Not just that. I'm going to suffer before it happens. I'm going to be rejected by the leaders of Israel. And then they're going to kill me. And then it's necessary that I rise again on the third day. So here's what we're going to look at next week. Why did Jesus have to come back from the dead? Why was it necessary for that to trans transpire? Before we do that, I want you just to bow your heads with me for a moment. Because I think the biggest question is right here in front of us. Who do you say that I am? And I don't want to bypass this. I don't just want to run by this question like, man, that's a great question. I want us to think because this is the question. You know, I have a firm conviction that when you stand before God, you're not going to be asked about your church attendance. I think it's important. As a matter of fact, I think your church attendance tells us a lot about what you believe, if I'm being honest with you. I would lovingly tell you that anybody who claims to be a Christian but is okay with being away from the body of Christ far more than they're with the body of Christ might not have a very healthy understanding of what the gospel and the church and all of those things in. But I don't believe you're going to answer for your church attendance. I don't believe you're going to answer for your service record, meaning that he's not going to ask for your credentials of everywhere you served in the life of the church. And I would tell you that that's important. Because if Jesus said the greatest among you were going to serve, and if Jesus said, just as I've served you, now you go serve other peoples, I, I think one of the indicators of a person's salvation is their willingness to serve other people. But I don't think he's going to say, all right, give me your, your, your resume on all the places that you serve. And you're going to be like VBS, 47 years consecutive, a nursery. Uh, I, I did this thing that nobody else wanted to do and, and, and list it all out. Like That's not going to be the question. 
And some of us might try to fall back on religious things. Like, you know, this is how religious I was. I've met people before who have just tried to sell me on how religious they were. And my response to that lovingly is there's a lot of religious people on the planet that aren't going to heaven. And so then what's the weight? The weight of the question is, who am I? And I want you to be able to walk out of here hopefully like Peter and say, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're, you're the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. You're the one that every knee will bow and tongue will confess on heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But here's the thing about that, and here's what I want us to guard against you can have that answer right in your head and not be convicted of it in your heart. And so some of us have been in church for so long, like that answer is not even hard. I mean, matter of fact, if we were to ask you that and give you a piece of paper and a pen, you're not just coming up with one answer. I mean, you're going to give us this narrative and all of these reasons why. But yet, here's the sad reality for some of us that it's never actually been a conviction and revelation to our heart by which we say, Jesus, I believe, I trust, I follow, here's my life. It's just an answer. So who is He to you? And don't look around the room for an answer from somebody else. Don't Wikipedia it. In your heart and life today, who is Jesus? And by God's grace, He'll reveal to you that He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, who came not just to die in your place on a cross, but came to conquer sin and death, rise again, and rule and reign in the hearts and the lives of the people who profess His name. Jesus isn't your genie. Jesus isn't just some religious figure. Jesus isn't just some guy to keep you out of hell. He's the conquering King who wants your life. And by faith, we surrender that to him this morning. We're going to pray. For some of us in the room today, there is a moment in the exact same way that the disciples' eyes were open, that your eyes have been open today. For the first time in your life, you believe that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, you might have prayed a prayer a long time ago. You might have even been baptized. But the honest answer is today, for some of us in the room, like today is the first time you got it. And that's the Lord calling you out. It's the Lord saying, I want you to place your faith and trust in me. I want you to follow me. I want your heart. I want to give you my life. And there's a couple of ways that you can respond to that. You can come forward. And that's not because you have to come forward to be saved. But it's just a sign. And it says, I want to talk to someone. 
For some of you, you're like, I don't feel comfortable walking up and I'd really like to talk with someone about this, which is why some of you can walk to the back where there are going to be people who'd be happy to sit down and visit with you. For some of you, this whole place is just a little intimidating and you're like, I do want to talk to someone, but, but I, I would rather schedule a time. And the, and the good news is we have that available to you. But here's the thing that I want you to know, that all of those opportunities there are simply us as a church wanting to say to you, we love you, we care about you, and we want to walk with you through this and answer any questions. You don't need us to be saved. You need Jesus. So today, the only way that you're going to be saved is crying out to Him and trusting in Him and in Him alone. Some of us in the room, as we think about that question, we know the answer and we mean it. We know that we're saved. But our lives look a whole lot different than someone who has truly surrendered themselves to Jesus as both their Savior and their Lord and their King. And the conviction point for you is, I know it and I believe it, but really, to be honest with you, my life doesn't look like it. Because I've managed to kind of push Jesus aside enough to where I just make him this guy that I want to call on. I just want him to rubber stamp my decisions. I just want him to be there whenever I need him. But other than that, I just want to live life my own way. And Jesus lovingly looks at you today and say, I didn't come for that. I came to be your king. And then some of us this morning are just overwhelmed with praise and thanksgiving in our hearts and lives that we know the answer because God has revealed it to us. And we just humbly praise God. God, thank you for saving someone like me. Thank you that my eyes are open to see the truth when so many others struggle to see it. God, thank you for allowing me to see and love and desire Jesus because without you, I couldn't do it. So we're going to stand to our feet. We're going to sing. And this is just an opportunity for you to respond how the Lord leads you to do that. So Father in heaven, just as you open Peter and the disciples' eyes, would you open ours? Father, just as you brought salvation to their life, God, would you bring salvation to those who would believe in you today? Father, will you put conviction where it needs to be and not let us succumb to worldly doubt? But God, may this strengthen our trust in you. And Father, may as we go through this week, may we seek to understand why it's necessary for Jesus to suffer to be rejected, to die, and then to rise again. Father, we thank you that he accomplished that for us. And it's in his name we pray and ask all of these things. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond this morning?